The Eagle and Child, Episode 5. Mere Christianity, Book 1, Chapter 3. Hello, and welcome to The Eagle and Child, the hallowed pub of the Inklings. This is a podcast where each week, my friend Matt and I share a beer and discuss the writings of the author known to the world as Clive Staples Lewis, or C.S. Lewis, or Jack to his friends. My name is David, and today we come to chapter three of Mere Christianity, passing the halfway point in book one. As always, I'm joined by my intrepid fellow C.S. Lewis fan, Matt. David, it's good to be here. And as you said, we're halfway through. And so we're getting into some pretty good stuff today. Absolutely. And if you'd like to give us some feedback or you've got questions or comments, please tweet us at Pints with Jack. So as we're finishing up this six pack of Heineken, cheers. Cheers. And actually, if you have any suggestions as to what beer we should drink for the rest of book one, please let us know. Or if you're feeling really generous, you could buy it for us. That would be great. What kind of beers do you typically like? Not a huge beer connoisseur, but I love Blue Moon. I love Shock Top. I enjoy Stella, Heineken, Guinness. I was at the Guinness factory when I was abroad at Oxford. I went there for a week. Yeah, I visited so, Dublin as well. Yeah, so I fell in love with Guinness. Uh-huh. But beyond that, I'm pretty far from anything else. Yeah, well, I like all of those. Uh, I would say generally, I don't like anything that's too hoppy. We might go for one of those suggestions, or if people tweet us, and especially if they mail us some beer, we'll drink something else. I'll take whatever. Matt is a very cheap date. (laughs) Okay, so today's chapter is The Reality of the Moral Law. In this chapter, Jack starts asking some deeper questions about this law. And in particular, he compares the other laws of nature, such as the law of gravity, to this moral law. This comparison tells us something about the moral law itself and about the nature of reality. In the preceding chapters, Jack has established that there is this law of human nature, that it exists and that we don't keep it. And he says that both of these facts are odd. Now, some people don't think that this is odd at all. They just say all this proves is that human beings are imperfect. But Lewis responds by saying that's only really a good answer if we're trying to apportion blame. But in this chapter, what he's trying to do is get to the heart of the matter. He's trying to get to truth about the reality of the moral law and about reality itself. He says that the very idea of something being imperfect of not being what it ought to be. There's that word ought appearing again and again. There it is. The fact that something isn't what it ought to be, that has certain consequences. So Jack turns to stones and to trees, and he considers the idea of right and wrong in relation to them. He says that when we come across a rock, we don't say it's right or wrong. We don't say a tree is right or wrong, other than saying that it's wrong for the purpose that we would like. For example, a rock might be the wrong shape or wrong color for a rockery. A tree might not be right in the sense that it doesn't give us the shade that we would like. Or perhaps the complete opposite, the fact that it's too shady, that it doesn't let enough light into our room. So when we say that a stone or a tree is right or wrong, what we're really saying is that it's inconvenient for some purpose that we would like to have for it. Here's what he says. You are not, except as a joke, blaming them, blaming a stone or blaming a tree, You really know that, given the weather and the soil, the tree could not have been different. What we, from our point of view, call a bad tree is obeying the laws of nature just as much as a good one. So he has this idea that trees and stones are just following the laws of nature, and that if we say that they're good or bad, it's more of in relation to whether they're convenient to us. 
And so what's the consequence of all of this? What's the consequence of trees and stones not having oughtness? The consequence is that the laws of nature simply describe what rocks and stones do. Now this is important because the law of human nature tells us something completely different. It's not descriptive saying this is what humans do. It's prescriptive. It's saying what they should do, what exactly. they ought to ought do. Ought to do. So Lewis points out the law of gravity tells you what stones do if you drop them. But the law of human nature tells you what human beings ought to do and do not. In other words, when you are dealing with humans, something else comes in above and beyond the actual facts. You have the facts, how men do behave, and you have something else, how they ought to behave. Now, some people are going to try and explain away this oddness. They're going to say that, aren't we just talking about stones and trees again? That when we say right and wrong with regards to human nature, it's just like right and wrong with regards to trees and stones. We're just saying it's inconvenient to us. This idea doesn't really stand up to criticism. Lewis points out a few things. First, the inconveniences can be identical, but we respond to them differently. So think about you get on a bus in the corner seat you want, but someone's sitting there and they got there first. You're inconvenienced. You're inconvenienced. But, but you're, there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, you're not angry about that. Well, at least not, not unnecessarily. Yeah, you're you not don't, unnecessarily. You don't, you don't feel violated. Exactly. You might be frustrated, but you don't feel violated. Or now think about you were there or the person sneaks in front of you and gets there first. Well, now exact same situation, you don't get it, but you feel violated. So it's not much about being inconvenienced. There's something deeper here. A second thing he says is we might not be inconvenienced at all. Think of a person who tries to trip you but fails. You weren't inconvenienced at all, but the principle of it still frustrates you. He shouldn't have done that. He should not have done that. He ought not to have done that. Yeah. I, I think to how often in my life something happens, I go, well, yeah, it didn't affect me, but it's the principle of it. Mm -hmm. That's what Lewis is pointing out here. So somebody that's tried to trip you up and failed hasn't inconvenienced you. But if somebody was just happening to walk a little slowly and ended up tripping you up, then you are inconvenienced, but you don't feel a violation of that moral law. Yes. The third response he gives is that sometimes bad behavior can actually be incredibly convenient to us. So in a war, we might find a traitor on the other side and find that person very, very useful. And we might use him and pay him, but we don't think much of him. Lewis uses very strong language. He says we regard him as human vermin because he's betraying his country. He's betraying his side. In his last point, our own good behavior often is inconvenient. Oh, tell me about it. I really like this one too. <laughs> How many times have you heard somebody say, oh, you're just a Christian because you think that life is easier that way? Yeah, that's a joke. I've heard it way too often, and I don't understand why people keep saying it. If you try and live the Christian life, very quickly you find out that it is immensely inconvenient. And it's not easy. It might be better in the end because that's how you experience true joy. But getting there is incredibly difficult. Now, as I say this, in the back of my head I hear listeners saying, well, no, with God's grace it's not that hard. That's true, but at the back of my head, I have Dietrich Bonhoeffer talking about grace is not cheap grace. With Christianity, we get everything, and in some ways it costs us everything. But 
in giving everything away, we get everything back. The various paradoxes that Jesus gives in the Gospels. He who wants to save his life must lose it. By the way, the book he's referring to, I'm actually reading it right now. It's called uh, The Cost of Discipleship. Incredible book. But back to Lewis. He talks about good behavior is often inconvenient. He says it means things like doing schoolwork honestly when it would be easier to cheat. Or staying in dangerous places when you'd rather go somewhere safer. A little earlier we were talking about if you hear somebody calling for help, sometimes you would actually just prefer to run away. He says, staying in dangerous places when you would rather go somewhere safer. Keeping promises you would rather not keep. In the run-up to this episode, you and I were talking about iPhones. Because we have iPhones like all the best people. What is it with Android people? I don't know. Don't understand them. Anyway, when I quit my last job, I actually had an iPhone. And the company had been bought during my time there by a much larger multinational corporation. And I knew that they hadn't done an inventory of all our devices. So when I quit, I could have very easily have just walked away with that phone. And I don't think any of my co-workers would have begrudged me the phone. However, my conscience said otherwise. And it was immensely inconvenient. I had to go and give back this phone that was immensely useful to me. And I had to go and buy a new phone. This last point. When I was first reading it, I actually took objection to it until I thought deeper about it. Because I've always been under the view that Christian morality, which, first of all, we haven't got to yet in this podcast, but I'm going to bring it up. <laughs> we just want to get there We just already. want to get there. But Christian morality, people will tell you, oh my goodness, no, it goes against your desires. It's, it's just awful. It's constricting. It stops me from being who I'm supposed to be. And I always respond, actually, in rebuttal, Christian morality, essentially the quote-unquote rules, are there for our benefit. They're actually there to protect us and to allow us to live the most beautiful life possible. J.K. Chesterton has this incredible analogy of imagine you are a bunch of kids on top of a mountain that has cliffs that drop thousands of feet. And imagine there's no fence around it. So you can run free, but you don't know where the boundaries are. Well, there's a chance that if you're playing soccer or something, you fall off the cliff and you, you go too far and you die. And so he describes the rules, quote unquote, as this fence around it. And when that fence is there, you can go wild. Exactly, without a worry of going over the cliff. Mm -hmm. So it's there for your benefit to allow you to live an even freer life. So instead of it being constraining, it's freeing. So as I'm reading this, I'm thinking, well, no, I actually think the morality is quite convenient to me. But then I took a step back and I thought, all right, but wait. Before I was taught the real reason for Christian teaching on behavior, which is book three, so just delayed gratification, <laughs> Before I was taught that, if you asked me in high school or college to come up with some sort of morality, this would be the last thing I would ever come up with mm -hmm. is Christian behavior. Because you are right. On the surface, it's the most inconvenient thing possible. It's only when you get into the depth of it that you realize it is actually, ironically, quite convenient. Tough, but brings a huge amount of joy and beauty in your life and freedom. As with most things in life, we tend not to look at the long-term consequences of our actions. It's very true. So one quick final thing to tie this into the last couple chapters we've been talking about. If you remember last chapter, we were talking about how this isn't man-made. Really what we've been talking about here is another example of a rebuttal to some degree of an objection that could be, well, isn't just the law of morality something that was useful for us? This was a long way of proving that that is a very poor objection to the law of nature being something beyond us. Now, moving on to the next point in this section, 
it's going to be addressing this question of, okay, well, yeah, the law of morality is not something convenient to us, but is it convenient to society? Yes. The, the idea is this. Decent conduct does not mean what pays each particular person at a particular moment. It means what pays the human race as a whole. The trouble with this argument is it doesn't work any better at explaining right and wrong. It doesn't explain the oughtness of the moral law. So let me step through. Jack begins by saying that it's true that safety and happiness in our lives is dependent in a large part on societal cooperation. If we live in a society where people are good and kind and respect each other, everybody plays fair, generally everybody will do better. But it really misses the point. It doesn't answer this question of oughtness. It doesn't explain why we should do this. And you ultimately end up in circular reasoning. So I say, why should I be unselfish? And you can tell me, well, it's for the good of society. Okay, but why should I care about the good of society unless it affects me personally? And you've got no real comeback to that other than saying, well, it's because you shouldn't be so selfish. You should be unselfish. But that just takes us immediately back to where we began. Why should I be unselfish? And he seals this coming back to football again. And as all the listeners know, he's talking about real football, not American football. He says, if a man asked what is the point of playing football, it would not be much good saying in order to score goals. For trying to score goals is the game itself, not the reason for the game. And you would really just be saying that football is football, which is true, but not really worth saying. Now, I want to put David on the spot in response to the question of why should I care about society, except when it affects me personally. I would say, well, because it does affect you personally. What's good for society is good for you, at least within moderation. Yes, not to an extreme. There's this balance between what's good for you and what's good for society. But there is some benefit. I think there is some benefit, and it might be in my interest in that sense. But in other cases, it's not. Let's say I'm in my first semester at college. I'm taking Economics 101, and I go to my professor's office to ask him a question, and he's not there. But I come in, and I see the quiz that's coming up next week there on his desk. I can now take pictures and ace that test. Society is no better if I do the right thing, but I benefit greatly if I pass that test. If there is no moral law, if it's only about how good society is, then I should cheat. But if there is a moral law, if I find that my conscience is troubling me, if my conscience tells me that, no, this is wrong, then I shouldn't. No, that's a good, that's a good way of describing it. Yeah. Some, sometimes, yes, you will contribute to the good of society by being a good person, but not always. And if that's the case, then in those situations, the moral law shouldn't apply. Assume we take this assumption that we haven't fully built to yet, but we're very close to, that God created this moral law and placed it on our hearts. I would expect it to be good for me and good for society. Mm -hmm. So those two things don't disprove it. A perfect loving God, I would expect the law that he puts on our hearts, is going to conveniently be good for us and good for society. Yeah. But just simply because it's good for society isn't enough to make a moral law that compels me to do the right thing. Yeah. Because just because society says something, and Lewis makes the point here, remember, society is just people. Just because people tell me that other people will generally be better off, why do I care? For me, whenever anybody tries to explain away the moral law by saying it's for society, it's for the good of society, 
I always come back to this question. Why do I care? If there is no moral law, it is in my best interest to just make sure that the net benefit is good for me. Jack is going to talk a little later about how we are all immortal beings. This is one of the fundamental ideas of Christianity. We will live forever. Now, if that isn't true, if I have 80 to 100 years in this world, then surely the best policy for me is just to get the most that I can get out of this life, whatever way I can. As long as I don't get thrown in prison, as long as I don't get caught, as long as I have a net benefit, I've done well. Now, someone might respond and say, yes, but what if everybody did that? But what if everybody isn't doing that? I would be an idiot to play along with these rules when I can play by my own rules and have a far better life. I'm going to put on my econ hat now. Studied theology in college. Major was econ, though. Everything you're describing... Did you ever cheat in a quiz? Did you ever come to the professor's office and see a paper? I'm going to move on from that question. <laughs> what you're describing, though, actually, is game theory. Mm -hmm. And you can look at it from a prisoner's dilemma perspective, but you can also look at it from uh, that, the Fisher's, the commons problem, the, the problem of the commons. Please explain. So you have this lot. Let's just say this big space in C. And you have these fishermen that are allowed to go out there and fish. And what happens if you just let them go on their own? They will overfish because fishing will become unsustainable if everyone goes into this plot and just fishes the maximum amount. You go out there, you do all you can do, someone else does, and you're going to end up overfishing. There's not going to be enough reproduction, and you're going to extinct the population in that area. Even though it's better for everyone to fish less and just equally spread about the sustainable parts, Economics has shown that will not happen. People are going to be incentivized to maximize their fishing because they know the next person is going to break the contract and do theirs. And therefore, you're stuck with the situation where everyone overfishes and extincts the population, even though it's not best for society. So translating this into the prisoner's dilemma, let's say two suspects are brought into the police station. They're put in separate cells. And the policemen say, we think you guys committed this crime. But tell you what, if you confess and tell us everything that happened, we'll let you go free. But your partner, he's going to jail for a long time. If they both keep quiet, then they both get out because the police don't have enough evidence. However, each has a very distinctive motivation to betray the other. And so if everybody's good, well, as good as criminals can be, they get out. But if they betray the other, well, actually, then they get everything. They now don't even have to share the loot. Why should I care? If there is another way of living that maximizes my benefit, because I'm only a creature that's going to last 100 years max, surely I would be an idiot to do anything other. Beyond that, why is it a problem? It's the same thing in the evolutionary argument where people say, well, evolution tells us that there's no God. Well, no, that could just, you know, if there's a God, that could be the mechanism he used to create the world. Mm-hmm. Exactly, that God would write on our hearts a moral law that would encourage us to grow and flourish as a society. I actually have a hard time believing in a God that would do the opposite, write a moral code that was bad for us and bad for society. Think about that for a second. Well, clearly you haven't watched Wonder Woman. Ares, the god of war, he's all about war and destruction. Ah, I haven't seen that. Oh, okay, I'm just, I can't even look at you right now. <laughs> So from all of this, we can conclude that the law of human nature, this moral law, is something that's real. 
It's not something that is just simply a question of convenience, because it very often isn't. And it's also not something that we just get from society, or as we expanded it just now, from evolution. Jack began this chapter comparing the moral law with, say, the law of gravity. And we can see from comparing the two that there is something different about the moral law when compared to the laws of nature. Here's what he says. The moral law, or the law of human nature, is not simply a fact about human behavior in the same way as the law of gravitation is, or maybe simply a fact about how heavy objects behave. On the other hand, it is not a mere fancy, for we cannot get rid of this idea, and most of the things we say and think about men would be reduced to nonsense if we did. I think that last point about it reduces the things that we say and do to nonsense is very true. If you try and say there is no moral law, you end up saying some very silly things. The law of human nature is a thing that is really there. It's not made up by ourselves. And yet, it is not a fact in the same way as our actual behavior is a fact. It begins to look as if we'll have to admit that there is more than one kind of reality. Yet, quite definitely real, a real law which none of us made, but which we find pressing upon us. If I had to come up with a key takeaway from this section, I'd say it's that sentence, not made up by ourselves. Dear listener, just really take a step back and ask yourselves, if I was making a moral law that's convenient to me, would I make up the Christian moral law? No, probably not. No. If I was making a law convenient to society, going back to our prisoner's dilemma or the, the fisherman commons problem, I'd be a lot more selfish. I don't think this is what I would come up with. The more I think about it, the harder it is to defend that this is something we created. And it's one of the things that Jack talks about in the book. One of the motives of credibility for Christianity is this is not a religion I would make up. No. It reflects reality, which is often surprising and sometimes a little confusing. On that note, it's that time again. Yep. In the show notes, you'll find the notes and quotes for this chapter. Please like, share and subscribe. iTunes, Google Play, you know the drill. Show us some love. You can contact us on the website, restlesspilgrim.net, or tweet us at Pints with Jack. We always love your tweets. So let's do the sign-off. Further up. Further in. <laughs>